We're going to read from Matthew chapter 5 and verse 1. It's a passage we've been looking at quite a lot as I've been preaching over the last few months. And uh, it's the Beatitudes. We'll read from verse 1. Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. If you remember, as we've looked through this, we've explained how this is not a, a list of, uh, of requirements to get into the kingdom of heaven, to the kingdom of God, uh, to be accepted by God. This is who God is making us, as we uh, are Christians, as we give ourselves to following Jesus and give our lives over to him completely. This is who God is making us. He's making us those who are poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who are meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, those who are merciful, those who are pure in heart. And last week we looked at those who are peacemakers. And uh, this week we've got to verse 10, uh, 11 and 12, and we're going to look at, at what he says about persecution. Blessed are you when people insult you. But sorry, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. God's been speaking to us already today about who we are, what our purpose is, what our destiny is. He wants to make us a demonstration of God's glory in the nations. And as we've just heard uh, as well from Mel, God is challenging us this morning. He says, I know the plans I've got for you. I know the plans I've got for you. Plans to give you a future. Not necessarily the plans that we would have had. Not necessarily the plans that the world would have and would say we should have. But God has got plans for us. And he's saying, let me do it my way in your life. Let me challenge you in this way. I believe this, this passage, these verses are very challenging. I've been extremely challenged, uh, even about how I can, how I can bring them and, uh, this morning. And so let's, let's pray that God, that God speaks. Father God, thank you. You're with us. You're always with us. You've been speaking to us this morning already through the worship time, through the words that you've given people to bring. Thank you, you will speak through my words, Lord, not because of anything that I am in myself, uh, not because I'm persuasive, but because you will speak by your Holy Spirit, and I pray you'll do that this morning, that you'll just speak to our hearts, you'll challenge us where you want to challenge us, that we will live our lives given over to you, whatever that entails. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Let's get into this. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The most obvious thing that we think about, I guess, when people are being uh, persecuted, and when we think about persecuted Christians, is people who are being attacked and beaten physically 
or killed for their faith. And uh, that is still going on in many parts of the world. And that is real persecution. I'm going to look at that uh, right now. There's also more than that as well, which we'll look at in a moment. But first of all, let's, let's just start about looking at people who have been persecuted. Of course, all the way through history, since, since Christ came, people were persecuted for their faith. People were persecuted because of righteousness. People were persecuted because of their belief in Christ. All you need to do is look at the New Testament. Look at the book of Acts. And we see right from the start the response of people to the early church. Dual response. People welcoming the message. And also people responding angrily and in persecution. And that has always been the case all through history. You can read history uh, books which will tell you about Christians and how they have been treated because of their faith. And right up until this present day, there was, I'm going to just highlight someone who is part of a new, was part of a New Frontiers church, leading a New Frontiers church in Dagestan, who was killed for his faith this year, in, uh, in this, earlier this summer. Um, he was called Artur Suleymanov, and he led the New Frontiers church in Dagestan. And I was looking on the internet and searched through his name, and there was an article here, uh, which I'm just going to read some of to you about him. Uh, This was from uh, a magazine, or uh, an institution, called the Slavic Center for Law and Justice, and they were writing about this man who had been killed. So they weren't from his church. And they say this, The Christian mission in Russia periodically runs into major hardship, and it's best... And most energetic missionaries are often subject to major dangers, or they are simply killed. Such was the fate of Pastor Arta Suleymanov, who was assassinated by a bullet to the head directly outside his place of worship, the Pentecostal church, Osana, um, in Dagestan, around 7 o'clock on July 15th. Obviously, they, they get some of the information wrong. They call it a Pentecostal church and name him pastor, but he was part of this, of this New Frontiers church. Artur Suleymanov had become one of the pioneering missionaries to have attained any real success among Muslims. He was one of the best-known Christian clergymen in Russia, not only because he was charming, a cheerful person, but because he also managed to create the largest Protestant church in the North Caucasus region, the Evangelical Christian Church Osana. From the very beginning of his mission, he prayed for the salvation of the Dagestan people. And even as threats poured down on his brotherhood uh, and his missionaries, uh, Pastor Suleymanov did not retreat or seemingly did, did not pay any particular attention to the hardship that came its way. The church founded by him is a truly remarkable, even a massive presence in the life of Dagestan. It can be said that the Osama, Osana Church and its pastor have remained the brightest and most unique example in our country of a big national church that's overcome local stereotypes and transformed traditional ways of life. The Evangelical Church Asana has been actively carrying out work among Muslims for more than 16 years already in terms of its missionary work. The authorities and the Islamic figures, leading figures must take it seriously. About 1,000 people currently belong to the church. From the very beginning of the church work, individual Muslims came to the services almost every Sunday to try and break up the meetings, jumping on the stage and tearing away the microphones. Also, beginning in 1999, other Muslims, usually students from Islamic schools, would come to the end of the meetings to try and anti-evangelize members of the congregation. The preaching 
of Pentecostalism in the region found its greatest success among the lax. For this reason, ethnic, ethnic leaders of the lax people were especially outraged by the work carried out by Osana. At the end of the 1990s, Nadia Kachiliev, the leader of the lax people, who's an advocate of an Islamic state, spoke out publicly on several occasions, uttering threats towards Suleymanov. A special meeting was eventually arranged between the two of them, and after this event, Kachiliev stopped publicly denouncing Osana. When I asked him how he managed to convince a radically inclined Muslim, not to mention one who aspired to build an Islamic state, to come to terms with the successful sermon of Christianity among his fellow tribesmen, Pastor Arthur responded, God spoke through my lips, and he knows how to be convincing. But we should nevertheless, nonetheless, not fool ourselves. In Dagestan, the conversion of the native people has always been met with stiff resistance. Some new believers have been thrown out of their homes while others have been threatened. But at church, they're told they should love their relatives even more. Conflicts often emerged at meetings between relatives and Pastor Arthur, as they would would become outraged and threaten him. But the pastor took a peace-loving stance. This often led to situations where the pastor, believers and relatives of the new convert find the convert... And from time to time, the furious relatives even become members of the Asana Church. This Christian congregation, despite stereotypes often associated with preconceptions of Protestant Protestant congregations as denying all traditions, has effectively become an ethnic and cultural centre. Under the church, musical and dance groups have been organised, which also perform national dances. Theatrical productions are regularly undertaken in the church's theatre. The children of church members can study at the Sunday school. Church members sponsor orphanages and render humanitarian assistance. The Asana Church actively distributes the Gospels and Christian literature in the languages of the Dagestan people. In addition, at services that take place in home study groups, hymns are sung in the Lak language. He concludes, exceptional missionaries often leave their mark in the history of this people, more deeply than the heritage left behind by writers or artists. A missionary is one who sows the word, nurtures faith in individuals, And after his death, the seeds that he has sown may bear such fruit that even the missionary himself did not expect in his lifetime. A true missionary with a fervent heart and true faith only continues to go further, never looking back, feeling within himself the strength that God has given him. It's due precisely to such missionaries that the news of salvation has spread through the whole world. But it's exactly these missionaries who pay the least heed to the conditions and dangers of the realities that actually surrounded them. Pastor Artur Sulaymanov, a man who wanted to deliver a whole people for eternal life, was exactly that kind of missionary. A man who is among our people, New Frontiers, Christian, leading the church, assassinated for his faith, but... The work continues, and what he has done will continue. Persecution goes on today all around the world. However, persecution doesn't just have to be being killed for your faith. Persecution can be ridiculed, can mean being ridiculed, or teased by people, ostracized from your family. It can mean losing your job. It can mean not being employed by someone because of your faith. It can mean having eggs thrown at your windows. It can mean having your property damaged. It can mean having any number of things happen to you. Now, Jesus isn't teaching here that everyone who is persecuted will be blessed. When he says, blessed are those, blessed are you when people insult you 
and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. He's not saying everyone who's persecuted in life is being blessed. Because he's saying there's many people who are persecuted and who suffer for, for different things, for political causes, for any number of other causes. Maybe just because they've been foolish. Jesus is saying it's for those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Peter draws it out, this distinction in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 15. In 1 Peter 4, 15, he says, um, If you suffer, it should, not be beca- it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed but praise God that you bear that name. He's saying you can suffer for other reasons. You can suffer because you've done the wrong thing. You can suffer because you've been unwise. You can suffer just because you've been a busybody, a meddler. Maybe you're interfering in something that actually God's saying, don't get involved in that. But instead, Jesus is saying we're persecuted because of righteousness, because of living our lives the way that Jesus lived his. Jesus swaps them over, doesn't he? First of all, he says, you're persecuted because of righteousness, in verse 10. And then he says, you're persecuted because of me. They're the same thing. We're persecuted because of righteousness. We're persecuted because of Jesus. And if we live our life righteously, if we live our lives following Jesus, we will be persecuted. The Bible tells us time and time again. Here Jesus doesn't say, blessed are you if people insult you. He says, but when people insult you. When people insult you, you will be persecuted. You will suffer many, many times in the Bible. You can read this promise to us as believers. We will suffer. We will suffer persecution. We like to hold on to many promises in the Bible. Maybe these aren't promises that we spend too much time thinking, but they're promises for us. And they're promises that God actually wants us to embrace, I believe, and not flee away from. And not say, oh, we don't want that. Because this is part of what God is doing in us. None of this is optional extras. John chapter 15 and verse 18. Jesus says to his disciples, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belonged to the world, it would love you as as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world. But I've chosen you out of the world And that's why the world hates you. And in 2 Timothy, in chapter 3, verse 12, um, Paul is encouraging Timothy in this as well. 2 Timothy, chapter 3, verse 12, uh, he says to Timothy, In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Jesus Christ will be persecuted. While evil men and imposters go from being go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That is a promise to us. All. If we want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, we will be persecuted for it. People don't persecute you if, you, if you're good. People don't persecute you if, you if you try and do good things. In fact, actually, they may applaud us if we just try and live a good life. Because what they're thinking is, well, that's great. That's a, you know, you often hear people saying, that's restored my faith in humanity seeing you do that. 
What they're saying is, that's telling me that, that actually I could be like that maybe on my best days. Maybe I could be that good. Maybe I don't have to be what I, inner, my inner being tells me that I really am. And the truth is that's what God's telling us that we really are, that we're sinners. But if you see someone doing good, trying to do good, you think, well, maybe we could be better. Maybe we could try harder. Let's applaud that person. They're restoring our faith in humanity. But God's not wanting to restore our faith in humanity. Artur Suleimanov did many good things. He wasn't shot for doing good things. He was shot because he was, per- he was following Jesus. He was trying to live a godly life. He was trying to be like Christ Jesus. And those of us who are righteous are persecuted because we're different. Because we're totally different to the world. Being righteous, remember, means being born again. We have to be born again. We can't be righteous in and of ourselves. Romans 3.10 tells us no one can be righteous through our own effort. Not even one. We're righteous because of what God has done in us. We're righteous because we're born again of God. We're born of the Spirit. We're a new creation. We've got a new life. As Jesus says, we've been taken out of the world. No longer in the world. If we were of the world, the world would embrace us and love us. But we're not of the world, brothers and sisters. Jesus has taken us out of that. And we're different Jesus had something different about him. We have something different about us. It's not even just about what we say. It's about who we are. And people will see that there is something different. And they will try and find fault. And there will be a reaction against us. Someone once said, if we try to imitate some of what Christ did, the world will praise us. When we become Christ-like, the world will hate us. If we try to imitate some of what Christ did, the world will praise us. But when we become Christ-like, the world will hate us. It's so easy to get caught up, isn't it, in the attractive idea. It can seem attractive that as as Christians, um, everyone should like us. Everyone should speak well of us. let's, Let's try and show people that we're not weird people, that we're... You know, that we can identify with them, that we, that we like them really. Let's, let's show that we're relevant to this world. Let's, let's show that we're contemporary, people might think. So that people accept us, so that people think, oh, they're just, they're just normal people after all. They're just, they're just like us. And there's some, you can see some of the thinking in that, but, but the idea isn't that we're trying to persuade people that we're like them. The idea isn't that we're trying to say to people, you know, Christianity is attractive. That's far from the case. Jesus says in, in Luke chapter 6 and verse 26, he says, Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for that's how their fathers treated the false prophets. If all people speak well of us, doesn't mean that some people won't speak well of us, but when all men speak well of us, that's because... Actually, we're not proclaiming the message. That's because we're not being who God wanted us to be, who God brought us into being. If all people speak well of us, we're we're proclaiming a gospel which is palatable to people, which has got added sugar, so that people will accept it. 
And Jesus didn't add sugar to his gospel, to his message. He came to bring a stark message which divided families. And even as people went out to be peacemakers, as we saw last week, and someone pointed this out in our core group last week, and said, well, what about this message where you say we're being peacemakers, but what about where Jesus says, I didn't come to bring peace but a sword? They said, yeah. God is a peacemaker, but as he comes as a peacemaker, as he comes to bring a message of reconciliation between us and God, he brings a sword between families. Because families, because there will be a reaction. And families will divide. Because Jesus hasn't come to create peace among all people, that everyone lives happily. Because what Jesus' message is, is a message that some will embrace and others will react antagonistically and violently against. Woe to you when all men speak well of you. Because that's what the false prophets had. They didn't proclaim the, God's word and people welcomed them and said, oh, they're great. They're great people. What godly men. But they were false prophets because they weren't speaking the word of God. We've even seen it this week, the division, haven't we, as, as the Pope has been. And whatever we think of the, of the Pope and Catholicism, we're not going to get into that. But he's been speaking... Uh, truth about God in what he's been saying and it's divided people some have embraced it but there's been a reaction there's been a reaction that you see, you'll have seen in the media in the newspapers in the, in the protests many people say that they're eager to hear about God but many of those people don't want the message that Jesus and Christians bring again in, in that passage in 2 in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 4 uh, and verse 3. Oh, that's 1 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3. It says, The time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. People want to hear the, the good news that they want to hear. And people will turn away from the truth. And they'll say, it's too much, it's too extreme, it's too strong. We don't want to go that far. You're just, you're just fundamentalists, you're just, you're just extremists. We don't want to hear. We want to hear other things. But when they're confronted with the truth, then they react. You see it time and time again. Time and time again in the Gospels. In, for example, in Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16, Jesus um, is teaching... Let's look at verse 13 uh, onwards. He says, Jesus says, No servant can serve two masters. Either he'll hate one and love the other, or be devoted to one and despise the other. And so he's teaching here about God and money. He says, You can't serve both God and money. So he's speaking truth to people. You can't serve two masters. And it says, The Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, who love money, heard all this, and they were sneering at Jesus. And he said to them, you are the ones who justify yourself in the eyes of men. But God knows your hearts. What's highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. There's a reaction. As Jesus teaches, the religious leaders sneer because they feel they have to justify their own position. They have to justify what they are doing. And Jesus may have gained followers, but many opposed him because of his message. And Jesus' life wasn't a comfortable one. It struck right to the heart of what people valued. And it still does today. 
The message of the gospel strikes right at the heart of what people value. And in the end, even though they welcomed him, as Jesus came in to Jerusalem in that last week of his life, and he was welcomed, Hosanna, Hosanna to the king. People calling out, he's the Messiah, by the end of the week. When he was presented by Pilate, and they said, who shall I release? Shall I release your king? And they said, no, release this murderer. Release this murderer. And yes, there were some in the crowd stirring it up. But it was in people's hearts, because they'll have heard something. They'll have welcomed it, but they were, what they'll have heard of Jesus just in that week will have, will have created a response in their hearts. It goes right to the heart of what we value. It pierces it with a sword. And God's saying, what is it that you value? Are you really valuing me above these things? And there's a response And the crowd respond and say, kill Jesus, release Barabbas. Many people say, oh, I admire Jesus. I admire Jesus' teaching. I tell you, those people have never really seen who Jesus is. They've never really heard the message that Jesus brings. Jesus isn't offering good moral advice. He isn't, the, the Beatitudes are not good advice about how to live your life. He's talking about the pathway to heaven. He's talking about becoming a new creation. He's talking about us leaving our old lives behind and giving ourselves totally to him, setting our feet upon that rock. And he's talking about the judgment that awaits those who aren't there. John Piper says, if you cherish chastity, sorry, if you cherish chastity, your life will be an attack on people's love for free sex. If you embrace temperance, your life will be a statement against the love of alcohol. If you pursue self-control, your life will indict excess eating. If you live simply and happily, you will show the folly of luxury. If you walk humbly with your God, you will expose the evil of pride. If you're punctual and thorough in your dealings, you will lay open the inferiority of laziness and negligence. If you speak with compassion, you will throw callousness into sharp relief. If you're earnest, you'll make the flippant look flippant instead of clever. And if you're spiritually minded, you will expose the worldly mindedness of those around you. If we are those people, by implication, our lives will be a provocation to others that we are not like them. We are of a different world. We are of a different spirit. And it will be a provocation. And it will attract or it will repel. And there will be two responses. That's, the, that's always happened. The two responses to Christ and to Christ in us and to the righteous. It will attract or it will repel. Jesus, Jesus explains it in John chapter 3 and verse 20. He says, everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Everyone who does evil and doesn't want that to be exposed will shy away from the light, will shy away from Christ, will shy away from Christ in us. There will be a reaction. Verse 21, but whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done 
has been done through God. People who are exposed to the light will hate it and react, but others will accept it and come freely admitting that everything good has been done by God. In other words, people's response to us, to our righteousness, is either persecution or conversion. That's it. It's either persecution or conversion. But you might say, well, hang on. Looking at my life, looking at our lives together, that doesn't seem to be borne out. It doesn't seem that we're getting that, that dynamic happening. Actually, it might not seem as though we're getting a lot of either happening. We might not be getting a lot of people seeing our lives and coming to know God. And actually, we might not be getting a lot of persecution in our lives either. Why is that? And that can be for a couple of reasons. And I believe we need to examine this. Firstly, we do need to examine ourselves. Jesus goes on from this teaching in Matthew. And he speaks about being salt and light. And he says in verse 14, You're the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand. And it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. We need to examine ourselves. Are we hiding our light under a bowl? Is that what we're guilty of sometimes? Maybe because we want people to think well of us. Maybe because we've kind of took hold of this idea that that's what it's it's like to be a Christian. That's what Christians should be like. We should have people thinking well of us. We don't want to be too extreme. So, we, so we'll, we'll not quite say some of the things that we feel we should say. We'll not quite represent ourselves in the true way that we are. We're hiding our light. Maybe because we're nervous and fearful of persecution. And we'll come on to that in a little, in a little while. Maybe we're not persecuted because people don't see our righteousness. Maybe that's one reason why we're not seeing this dynamic of persecution or conversion. There's another reason as well, though, that it could be. Biblically, persecution and conversion don't always happen straight away. It doesn't always happen straight away. Sometimes the Pharisees, when Jesus was teaching, they didn't respond straight away openly. They spoke among themselves. There was things going on in their hearts. There was that reaction going on, but they held it back. It didn't work itself out at that time. Now, obviously, it had to work itself out eventually. And it worked itself out in them uh, contriving for Jesus to be arrested and then, and then tried and then ultimately executed and hung, hung on a cross. But sometimes they didn't make that apparent because it wasn't actually expedient. It wasn't good for them to do it at the time. It didn't serve their purposes. Maybe the crowd were too much on Jesus' side at the time and they were fearful of a response. You know, you heard, you heard the same about this, uh, this pastor, this church leader in Dagestan, didn't you? Where, um, oh no, you didn't, because I cut that bit. <laughs> I edited it, but I, I read it. I cut that bit out of what I read, because it was quite long. But the, the, the Muslim groups stopped speaking out publicly, and the authorities, the, the Muslim state, stopped speaking out publicly against this church because of the, of the popularity that it was getting. But there was still that response going on internally. but they were too scared to be openly hostile at the time. 
It could be as well that sometimes, take, sometimes people take time to consider the message of Jesus. And actually, God is working in them. He's working them towards a path of ultimate salvation. So that as people see our righteousness, they will eventually come through and be saved by God. But that isn't necessarily going to happen straight away. In other words, people do see our righteousness and they're moving towards one of the two responses. And at some point, one of the two responses will happen in them. Either they'll come to know God or they'll become openly hostile towards God and openly hostile towards us. So it doesn't necessarily mean that our lack of persecution is that we're hiding our lights under a a bowl. But it's worth examining ourselves about that because it could be the case. But it could be that actually the good news is the storm is just about to break. That persecution is coming. Because there will be a response and a reaction. Of course, you might get one and then, and then the other. I, I remember hearing Steve Wiley's testimony of how he came to know God. And he was at a workplace on a production line, had a Christian woman next to him, and she used to provoke him all the time. He was antagonistic towards God. And he would lay into her. And to, a, to an extent where you think, that's persecution of her. He's responding, he's reacting. But actually, at the same time, God was working in him and ultimately brought him through to know God, to be saved. That woman never knew. I don't think she's ever known that he got saved. That her, for all she knows, her witness to him was just met with hostility. But God was at work. But there's a reaction one way or another. Jesus says in these Beatitudes, verse 12, Rejoice and be glad. He said, Blessed are you when you are persecuted for righteousness. Blessed are you when you are persecuted for me. Rejoice. Be glad. You might think, what? What's that about? What do you mean, rejoice and be glad? It doesn't seem to make sense. It doesn't seem to make sense for Jesus to encourage us to rejoice when we face suffering for Christ, when we face death, when we face physical pain. Jesus, were you oblivious to what it meant when you're saying that? Are you just like some some kind of insensitive guy who, when someone's, someone's facing bereavement or suffering, just comes in and sort of slaps you on the back and goes, oh, never mind, praise God anyway. Is that what Jesus was like? Of course not. Of course Jesus knew what it meant to suffer for righteousness. He had a life suffering for righteousness, culminating in his death on the cross. But Jesus knew that the reward which was promised in heaven far outweighs any suffering that we experience here on earth. That's what he says. Great is your reward in heaven. He knew what awaited. He knew that the suffering that he was experiencing and that his followers would experience is nothing in comparison to the great reward that we will get in heaven when we meet our Father. The early apostles had got hold of what of it as well. We, we looked last week at where, at where they were taken before the uh, authorities, the Sanhedrin, And they were told not to uh, preach the gospel. And they said, well, we can't do anything else. And they were flogged. 
And in Acts, 40, Acts 5 and verse 41, um, remember we saw um, no, that's the wrong. Oh, that's John. <laughs> Acts, 5, Acts 5 and verse 41, it says, The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. They'd been flogged, yet they had hold that that was going to give them great reward in heaven. Great reward in heaven. We've been counted worthy to suffer for Jesus. We've been identified with his suffering. And there'll be such reward for us. They knew that it was, there wasn't a lukewarm response. There was a reaction. Great, that means the message of God is going out. It's being shared. And and it receives a response. And we can rejoice because of that. Paul got hold of it, didn't he, as well? In 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And verse 16, Paul said, Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. He was talking about the things that happen, the suffering for Jesus' sake. And he's saying it's, it's light and momentary troubles in comparison. And we can think, how can you say that? How can, it, how can we see that as light and momentary troubles? But that's what God is wanting us to be able to see as well. It's not just for those first people, for those first believers, for the early church. It's not their attitude. God's wanting us to have that attitude as well. Because otherwise we'll just think, we're going to flee away from suffering. We're not going to have the backbone to stand up for it, to it. Because we, we, we won't see that there's a greater reward coming. Or we'll, or we'll look around and think, well, we are suffering for righteousness. But we suddenly start feeling, but it shouldn't be like that. That's not, that's not right. If you're suffering in, for, your, for righteousness because of Christ, let me tell you, let me encourage you, rejoice. You have got great reward in heaven. I read an article, actually, that Frank Skinner, um, again, who's a Catholic, he's got a Catholic theme coming through today, um, <laughs> but he, he kind of got hold of this as well, to some extent, because um, he, he wrote an article in the Times when there was a persecution of, um, of these Christians um, who, who, were where, who were praying for people to be healed, and people were losing their jobs. You remember that there was a nurse, I think, and a teacher, um, equally, who, who both lost their jobs because of their faith in Christ. And I think the Archbishop of Canterbury was saying, or maybe the former Archbishop of Canterbury was saying, this, this isn't right, you know. And Frank Skinner wrote an article and he said, well, to be honest, he says, surely that's what the Bible says will happen to Christians and they will be rewarded. He said, surely they will get rewarded, those Christians. He, said, he, he called it getting brownie points. <laughs> he, he, said, you know, he said, we'll get brownie points when we're persecuted. He said, Christians were at their best in the Colosseum, you know, kneeling and being persecuted. He kind of wrote it in a funny way, but he got hold of something. He got hold of something that it's not just about this life. It's not just about what we experience here and now. 
And if we think it's just about this life, if our Christianity is just only goes as far as our death, as far as our day-to-day life, then we won't be able to embrace persecution and suffering. We will flee from it. Because we need to see that there's far greater reward. Some people don't like to, like to even think about there being reward in heaven. Well, it's a bit weird thinking that there's a reward for us. That's what God promises us. He promises us us because we will suffer in this life. There's an eternal glory which far outweighs all the sufferings. How can we rejoice and be glad when we suffer if we don't believe there's something better? Our lives as followers of Jesus always have to have where we're headed in view and the promise of what is to come. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 24 onwards, um, he says... He talks about athletics. And he gives this illustration, doesn't he, of, of beating his body. 1 Corinthians 9, 24. Don't you know that in a race, all runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last. But we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I don't run like a man running aimlessly. I don't fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it my slave. So that after I've preached to others... I won't myself be disqualified for the prize. Athletes put themselves through a lot of pain because they've got a prize that they know they're going to get. They put themselves through a lot of suffering. You know, I've seen programs where, you know, Steve Redgrave just doing his workouts on when he was doing the rowing and he was almost, you know, physically being sick. I think he was physically being sick and just, and just almost collapsing on the ground because he's pushed himself so much. But he knew the prize that was ahead of him. He knew what he wanted. He wanted that medal, that gold medal at the Olympics, and he got it. But Paul's saying, they're doing it for for a prize that's not going to last, and we're doing it for a prize that will last. That's what we've got to go ahead. So we we can endure suffering and hardship for the sake of Christ, and we can reward, we can rejoice in it, because we know that we've got a great reward in heaven. That's the truth. That's what God is wanting us to get hold of this morning, that he's got plans for us which aren't necessarily our plans, and that his plans aren't going to necessarily be comfortable. In fact, they'll, endure, they'll involve persecution and suffering and pain, but we have an eternal glory which far outweighs those. We can read testimonies of people who have died for the sake of Jesus. And be so encouraged and challenged by them. I was just reading a few. I, was, I got Fox's Book of Martyrs. I was reading through it. And some of the testimonies of the martyrs who died. Let me just read and tell you a few of them. People who died for Christ. Refusing to, to go back. Refusing to renounce their faith when, uh, when they were asked to do so. A guy called George Carpenter. He was told by his persecutors, you can go back to your wife and children if you renounce your faith. If you embrace the Catholic faith, faith actually, and renounce your faith in, in Jesus. And he replied this. He said, my wife and children are so dearly beloved unto me that they cannot be bought from me for all the riches and possessions of the Duke of Bavaria. But for the love of the Lord my God, I will willingly forsake them. He loved his wife and children so much, but he said, but for the love of God, I'll willingly forsake them. Even children 
we're responding. There's children here. Just think about the children of this guy, John Rogers. He was burned alive at the stake because of his faith in Christ. And his children went to the place of the execution. They accompanied him. You'd kind of think, oh, let's keep the kids away. They don't want to see this. They don't want to see their dad burnt at the stake. They went because they knew what he was suffering for. And they called out encouragements to him through their tears that he might be strong and not turn back and dishonor Christ. Children, understanding, this is what it's about. Seeing their father burnt at the stake and they go and see him and they calling, don't turn back, just be strong. Two men, Hugh Lavalock, a lame old man, and John Apris, a blind man, both burnt together at the stake. They were praising God all the while. Hugh, after he was chained, he cast away his crutch, and he comforted John, his fellow martyr, and he said to him, be of good comfort, my brother, for my Lord is our physician. He will heal us both shortly, thee of thy blindness and me of my lameness. They understood what they had for them. They understood what they were coming into. And for them, it wasn't the worst thing to avoid. They embraced it because they knew they were going to be with their Lord. And six other martyrs, including Elizabeth Folks, were nailed at the stake. It says, the fire was about them, and they clapped their hands for joy in the fire. And the standers-by, who numbered thousands, cried, the Lord strengthen them, the Lord comfort them, the Lord pour his mercies upon them. This was only a few hundred years ago in England, all of these. People who for their faith in God, knowing that they were secure, knowing they had an eternal destiny, willingly embraced death, horrendous death. Do we see it? I must say, as I've read and prepared for this, I've been so challenged this week. Do we see it for ourselves? Do we love Christ that much? Do we love Christ so that Nothing is more important than being with him. That we will endure persecution, ridicule, lack of job, persecution in whatever form it comes. Or are we looking for our reward here on earth? If we are, we're going to flee from persecution. We're going to turn back. Our lights will be hidden. The church will be weak and wishy-washy. And we won't be persecuted but we won't win anyone either. That's not what God's plans are for us. That's not what God is calling to us. We're secure in Jesus Christ. I want to just finish by, by reading a, a, a poem which I've, I read years ago, first of all. and um, It's by Adrian Plass, and actually in some ways there's, there's little funny bits, and I don't, want to, I don't want to detract from the weight of what God's saying. So I I was debating whether to read this, but I I feel I will. Because I feel he's understood. It goes like this. When I became a Christian, I said, Lord, now fill me in. Tell me what I'll suffer in this world of shame and sin. He said, your body may be killed and left to rotten stink. Do you still want to follow me? I said, amen, I think. 
I think amen. Amen, I think. I think I say amen. I'm not completely sure. Can you just run through that again? You say my body may be killed and left to rot and stink. Well, yeah, that sounds terrific, Lord. I say amen, I think. But Lord, there must be other ways to follow you, I said. I really would prefer to end up dying in my bed. Well, yes, he said. You could put up with sneers and scorn and spit. Do you still want to follow me? I said amen, a bit. A bit amen, amen a bit, a bit I say amen. I'm not entirely sure. Can we just run through that again? You say I could put up with scorn and also sneers and spit? Well, yes, I've made my mind up and I say amen a bit. Well, I sat back and thought a while. Then I tried a different ploy. Now, Lord, I said, the good book says that Christians live in joy. That's true, he said. You need the joy to bear the pain and sorrow. So do you want to follow me? I said, amen, tomorrow. Tomorrow, Lord, I'll say it then. That's when I'll say amen. I need to get it clear. Can we not just run through it again? You say that I will need the joy to bear the pain and sorrow. Well, yes, I think I've got it straight. I'll say amen tomorrow. He said, look, I'm not asking you to spend an hour with me. A quick salvation sandwich and a cup of sanctity. The cost is you. Not half of you, but every single bit. Now tell me, will you follow me? I said, amen. I quit. I... I'm very sorry, Lord. I said, I'd like to follow you, but I don't think religion is a manly thing to do. He said, forget religion then and think about my son and tell me if you're man enough to do what he has done. Are you man enough to see the need and man enough to go? Man enough to care for those who no one wants to know? Man enough to say the things that people hate to hear? To battle through Gethsemane in loneliness and fear? And listen, are you man enough to stand it at the end? The moment of betrayal by the kisses of a friend. Are you man enough to hold your tongue? Are man enough to cry? When nails break your body, are you man enough to die? Man enough to take the pain and wear, <laughs> and wear it like a crown? Man enough to love the world and turn it upside down? Are you man enough to follow me? I ask you once again. I said... Oh, Lord, I'm frightened. But I also said, Amen. I said, Oh, Lord, I'm frightened. But I also said, Amen. Let's pray.